Sugar Magnolia, Blossom is blooming. That's all empty and I don't care. So my baby down by the river, knew she'd have to come up soon for air. Sweet Blossom, come on under the willow. We can have high times if you look back. Well, hello, this is Michael Volkoff, and this is uh, episode 185 of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Uh, our episode today is a discussion with Alex Katoya, uh, recently joined the Volkoff Law Group. He's our regulatory manager, and we're going to have a discussion about anti-boycott compliance. And uh, welcome, everybody. Hope you're doing okay. Uh, hope you're getting the vaccine or getting on a list to get the vaccine and that uh, you're keeping busy. Um, I'm really glad to have Alex uh, on the podcast today. And uh, he has sort of vast experience, a lot of past experience with regard to uh, trade compliance, uh, whether it be with Department of Commerce, uh, Department of uh, uh, Treasury, with OFAC, and then obviously with the State Department for ITAR. Anyway, so uh, hope you enjoy the discussion we have. Uh, today. And uh, before we do that, let's uh, hear from our sponsor, Steel Compliance. Steel Compliance is the global leader in compliance and ethics management. Steel's compliance and ethics platform is comprehensive, robust, and easy to use to promote a company's culture of compliance. Steel partners with the world's largest, most respected companies to deliver compliance products and services that help organizations embrace a culture of compliance while protecting their brand. Building an ethical culture is a complex undertaking that requires a detailed understanding of the global compliance environment, considerable time, and specialized expertise. Steele's end-to-end ethics and compliance platform is designed to provide compliance officers with the solutions they need to proactively address changing regulatory and reputational risks. Steele's ethics and compliance automated platform offers critical functions designed to promote a speak-up culture to advance employee engagement reporting, and incident management, investigate promptly and fairly potential incidents to ensure compliance with your organization's code of conduct and applicable laws and regulations, including anti-corruption, anti-money laundering, antitrust, sanctions, cybersecurity, and data privacy. Manage your organization's compliance policies and procedures to ensure that policies are updated and disseminated effectively so that employees understand your organization's compliance requirements, Educate and engage your organization to promote understanding and how your compliance program applies to -to day-to-day operations. And evaluate and monitor your organization's business partners, vendors, suppliers, and customers to mitigate risk and ensure adherence to your organization's ethics and compliance requirements. To learn more about Steele's compliance solutions, please contact us at email steelglobal.com or call 415-692-5000. Well, hello, everyone. I'm happy to welcome uh, Alexander Kotoya. We'll call him Alex, though, for purpose of this. Alex uh, recently joined the Volkoff Law Group as a regulatory manager and compliance consultant. And uh, if you've been following him already, he's hit the ground running. Uh, Welcome, Alex. Hey, thanks, Mike. Glad to be here. Well, not to embarrass you, uh, I thought I'd do your background, Alex, because if, uh, you know, I, I never like sort of doing my own background, uh, <laughs> to be honest with you, because it's 
whatever. I just, the intros, uh, it's kind of weird when you do it yourself. So Alex, uh, just so everybody knows, uh, just recently joined our firm. He specializes in corporate risk assessments, evaluation of general compliance programs and the remediation of compliance de uh, deficiencies. He also specializes, and, is, and when I say specializes, he's been doing this for a while, in trade export compliance, and is familiar with a broad range of issues arising under both the Arms Export Control Act and its implementing uh, regulations, ITAR, uh, as well as the Export Administration Act and its implementing regulations we call EAR. Uh, Alex is a 15-year veteran of both law firm and in-house environments. His most recent experience includes working in the legal and compliance department of a prominent suborbital space tourism company, which uh, should be relatively easy to figure out, or there's a small universe of them, I think. Alex holds a master's degree in law with a concentration in regulatory compliance from Regent University School of Law in Virginia Beach, uh, Virginia. He also holds the uh, Certified Compliance and Ethics Professional, CCEP, designation from the Compliance Certification Board. Uh, Alex, uh, to say, I mean, you have an impressive career path, uh, that's for sure, but fill us in a little bit on what, what attracted you to the compliance profession uh, and, and why you got into it. Yeah, so thanks, Mike, for having me on the podcast. First of all, I think I've listened to almost all of the recordings of your podcast previously. So uh, well, I never wait, thought I would Wait, be... Alex, then we know you're bored, okay? We know you're <laughs> bored, okay? So it's really, uh, it's really a pleasure to be on the opposite side of it and involved in recording it. I guess I could say, um, I wish I could say that my involvement in compliance was planned, but I literally fell into the field by happenstance. Um, I spent 10 years of my career working in the trenches of commercial litigation in civil rights defense as a senior paralegal. Um, I then had the fortune to join a prominent, uh, as you mentioned, suborbital space tourism company in a legal and contracts role. And as the company expanded its operations, um, there was a noticeable niche that needed to be filled in the compliance area. So I was a guy who got selected to attend the export compliance training by default. And from there, gradually transitioning to other facets of compliance as well. You know, I love the field of compliance because as corny as it sounds, you really are on the front lines of enforcing ethical norms and checking that inherent propensity that unfortunately too many human beings have towards malfeasance. Right, right. But, you know, though, I have to say, uh, Alex, um, I always was attracted to compliance uh, because of uh, it's an idealistic sort of profession. I mean, That's it, never, exactly right. it, it never ends because as soon as you finish whatever project, there's still more, there's always more to do, but I always feel like it's uh, trying to better the corporate culture, trying to make sure you're in compliance with the law, but encourage people to ultimately do the right thing because you can't watch over everything that they do, you know? And I think what you pointed out is critical there, doing the right thing, building the culture where people uh, can be relied upon uh, when the people or other people are not watching them to be able to do the right thing on a daily basis. And I think that's a noble ambition and one of the, the main aspirations of compliance. Yeah. Now, and, and I want to talk, and I know you that this isn't the only thing that you do, but you do know a lot about trade compliance and uh, dealing with the regulatory requirements, licensing, things like that. Um, 
over the course of your career, since you got into compliance, what kind of trends have you seen in the trade compliance area? It's, it's a niche area, but, but there's a lot of sort of tools, regular tools that we use, audits, you know, enforcement, uh, monitoring, making sure that we, you know, stay in compliance with conditions on the licenses and also that you have a internal licensing process that works. But over the course of your career, what kind of trends and interesting uh, developments have you seen? Yeah, so I just wanted to speak briefly about the field of compliance generally, because I think one of the more noticeable trends I've seen during my career is the emergence of compliance as kind of a necessary complement, albeit far from equal yet, to other corporate functions like finance, legal, and HR. And I think far too often, corporations were previously accustomed to slapping another title on general counsel and merging compliance functions to the extent that they existed at all with the operations of the legal team so that they were virtually indistinguishable. I think corporations now, certainly those that operate in the public space are recognizing the need to have a separate compliance function embedded in the organization that ensures company goals are carried out in compliance with the law generally and with heightened ethical standards that a number of newer corporate stakeholders like yet ethically conscious investors, for instance, are insisting be part of the equation. But um, with respect to trade compliance specifically, there's certainly been an increased emphasis on using the levers of trade policy, I think, to influence behavior by nations with interests that are adverse to those of the U.S. Uh, we've seen, for instance, a heavy reliance by the prior administration on the use of sanctions imposed by BIS to punish Chinese state actors and companies like Huawei that drew the administration's ire by including them on the entity list. And certainly we've right. seen uh, the increased readiness, readiness of OPEC to slap sanctions on beleaguered nations like Venezuela and on those that evaded the anti-democratic Maduro administration there. So there really has been a flurry of activity in the sanction space in recent years. So you think there's more, it's definitely, if you compare it to, let's say, 10 years ago, there's definitely more sanctions and more sort of using it as a tool to further your foreign policy objectives here. In the United I definitely States. think I definitely okay. think that's the case. Yeah, that's interesting because that means there's a lot more complications with compliance and you have a lot more risk for enforcement, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. So, um, you know, we have a new administration that's taken over, you know, commerce, state and treasury. And what, uh, I mean, what do you expect over the next, you know, four years uh, do you see any changes coming in the trends you, you sort of talked about? Yeah, so I think it's honestly a bit premature to tell. I mean, uh, President Biden's nominees for key positions at DOJ and SEC are still under consideration by the Senate. Um, and as you know, Mike, uh, SCPA enforcement has been sort of consistent across recent presidential administrations. Yep. But I think that the one thing that will change is the level of international cooperation and international cooperation. On several occasions, I think President Biden has intimated that his administration was going to adopt a cross-border border approach to ferreting out corruption on a global scale. Yeah. Uh, for, for DOJ, I think that we can expect to see a return to the professional prosecutor mentality of previous administrations with Merrick Garland and Lisa Monaco returning to government service. I think that pretends poorly for uh, corporations and others that might have benefited from the sort of disjointed and fragmented approach to white-collar crime that was taken by the prior administration. So certainly an uptick in that area as well. Um, aside from that, I also think, as Matt Stankowitz rightly mentioned on one of your recent podcasts, that areas like the cryptocurrency market will begin to see a plethora of new rules established. 
in an effort right. to deter what the new administration, particularly Treasury Secretary Yellen, sees as fraud, but in actuality is relatively benign. Right. I, th- I think that's true. And but do you see any like, um, let's say, uh, the new Treasury Secretary, I mean, the new Commerce Department head, uh, Gina Raimondo, uh, she's a sort of no nonsense governor from Rhode Island. Um, is there any indication yet of any of her priorities or, or it's too early to tell? She was just, I think, confirmed this past week, as I recall. She was. And actually, I, I grew up in Rhode Island, so I'm familiar with the, with the Ocean State. And uh, I've been a follower of the governor for some time. I think yeah. during her confirmation hearing, she said all the things that one would typically say to get right. the Senate to confirm her, that she would evaluate uh, uh, each situation independently and arrive at a, an informed conclusion. I think there was pressure by Senator Ted Cruz. Uh, to say that she would maintain the sanctions with respect to Huawei and on uh, and China generally, and she refused to do that and categorically. Um, but I think in general, we'll see a continuation of the approach towards China that was adopted by the Trump administration yeah. because you know China has not uh, been very friendly to us recently. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I don't think there's going to be any big change, uh, you know, barring some breakthrough. Uh, you know, with China, and I, and I'm not so sure that it's it's going to happen. And frankly, there's no reason to loosen it at this point. Um, and while we definitely present some potential security issues, um, and I know that. So, well, let's uh, listen. I wanted to turn to a specific issue you recently wrote about on our blog, corruption, crime, and compliance. And it was a terrific article, and I was really glad you raised it uh, because this issue occasionally comes up. We've had it come up in our practice. Uh, we've mm-hmm. had a few situations concerning um, anti-boycott compliance. And what was it that caused you to focus on that issue? Like, how did why, why did that come up in your mind? So, yeah, prior to joining the in-house corporate environment, I literally had no idea that the anti-boycott regulations existed. Uh, when I became cognizant of those rules, I began to realize how easy it is to run afoul of those laws by seemingly innocuous conduct for companies that are involved in any sort of facet of trade in the Middle East. The tricky part about the anti-boycott laws is that even generally agreeing to abide by, say, the laws of a nation like Yemen in the context of an otherwise innocent commercial contract might trigger a violation of the anti-boycott rules. So um, those rules... Uh, include the boycott of, of the nation. No, I'm sorry. This, that's because those laws also include the boycott of nations like Israel, which was antithetical right. to our position of friendship with that country. Right. So you can see we're carefully uh, treading carefully in that space is important. Yeah, I'm gonna look, we'll go. I, I'm gonna have you sort of describe in general the anti-boycott requirements. But I can remember we had a situation where it was uh, an oral request that was made uh, and not put in writing. And we still, uh, I think, as I recall, we uh, ended up uh, reporting it, which is required under the anti-boycott statute, but and regulations. So anyways, but just uh, for our listeners, can you sort of generally outline uh, the anti-boycott requirements? Because I know there's sort of two, and what I thought was really interesting was I did not know as much about the Department of Treasury regulations, but we have Department of Treasury and Commerce. But if you can just uh, generally describe 
uh, those, and then we'll go through each of the agencies. Uh, yeah, sure. Okay. So as you mentioned, Mike, both the U.S. Departments of Treasury and Commerce um, have regulations that govern participation of covered persons and entities in what are called unsanctioned foreign boycott, boycotts. These are known collectively as the anti-boycott laws. Um, and those regulations and statutes generally prohibit U.S. persons and companies from participating in activities at odds with broader U.S. foreign policy objectives. As I mentioned previously, the primary target of those laws is the Arab League's longstanding controversial boycott of the state of Israel, but participation in any unsanctioned boycott activity is generally prohibited. Um, so, But that's, uh, and it's interesting, you know, I, I don't know what's going to happen as a result of, for example, the UA, the normalization of relationships that's occurred between Israel and Saudi Arabia. I don't know for, or UAE or whatever, I don't know if they're going to end up, uh, what impact that has on the Arab League's activities. So we'll have to take a look at that. And as that normalization occurs, maybe those countries will back out of the Arab League uh you know, organized boycott of the state of Israel. So we'll see. It's an interesting Yeah, that could question. be an interesting development. Yep. Yeah, we should stay on top of that for our uh, listeners and clients and everything. So go through, if you can, let's start first with the Commerce uh, Department's anti-boycott rules. And that's the one we come up against probably the most often, if at all. Uh, but go ahead and, and sort of, if you can describe those, uh, the rules and regulations, that would be great. Sure. So the regulations uh, that you mentioned are contained in the Export Administration Regulations, or the AIR, and they apply broadly to activities of U.S. persons, which are defined as U.S. citizens and residents, uh, U.S. companies, and their controlled foreign branches, affiliates, and subsidiaries that are done in connection with U.S. commerce. So prohibited activities under the AIR include furnishing information about dealings or business relations with boycotted countries or parties, uh, refusing or agreeing to refuse to do business with boycotted parties, or by boycotted per parties, we are talking about persons and firms who are blacklisted by the boycotting country. Mm -hmm. um, it prohibits paying, honoring, confirming, or otherwise implementing letters of credit containing prohibited conditions, uh, discriminating in the employment or assignment of U.S. citizens or residents on the basis of religion, race, sex, or national origin. Uh, furnishing information in support of a boycott requirement or request about the race, religion, sex, or national origin of a U.S. citizen, and furnishing information about any person's association with a charitable or fraternal organization supporting a boycotted country. Hmm. I, it's broader than, you know, the thing that's amazing about it is it's, it's broader than we think. Um, you know, uh, for example, furnishing information in support of a uh, boycott requirement or a request about the race. So let's say uh, an, a, a counterpart from, you know, one of the Arab uh, countries, let's say, you know, from uh, Egypt says, well, we want to know the race, religion, or national origin of our, you know, business partner, the person we're dealing with. Right. And, and that could raise uh, certainly issues uh, it wouldn't be done in such a formal way. It may be done informally, but it's interesting how, um, and it's obviously getting at whether or not, let's say their religion is one from Israel or, you know, they are Jewish or whatnot, or there may be other boycotted 
you know, parties uh, that have been organized among various countries. We shouldn't just say it's only uh, the Arab League. For, uh, you know, for example, there are other alliances where boycotts can uh, come up amongst uh, the uh, participating countries. So it's just that the Arab League one for many years was really the, the most significant that people focused on. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And so, as you mentioned, Mike, although the Arab League boycott is uh, certainly one of the more conspicuous foreign boycott activities or others out there, and the statutes and regulations that pertain to uh, anti-boycott activities apply to those as well. Yeah. And so, so when this action, if one of those prohibited actions occurs, and I remember we went through this with a client, we, end, we ended up actually filing a report Mm. With the uh, with uh, we filed a letter report, um, but go ahead. What what is the requirement if one or more of those prohibited actions occurs? Is it just the reporting? Yeah. So under the under the EAR, uh, U.S. persons have a duty to report all requests to further or support a restricted trade practice or unsanctioned form by boycott to the Commerce Department, and that report's going to be filed with the Commerce Department on a quarterly basis. Um, and if you don't, the Export Control Reform Act of 2018 provides for the imposition of substantial administrative and criminal penalties in the case of violations occurring on or after August 13th of 2018. The ECRA authorizes um, the imposition of administrative sanctions per violation of the greater of $300,000 or twice the value of the underlying transaction. So it could be substantial. And that would be in addition to the denial of export privileges and the revocation of any uh, licenses that the company might have with the Bureau of Industry and Security. Mm. And there are criminal penalties too? Yes. And criminal violations of the anti-boycott laws, although rare, carry the potential for the imposition of a fine in an amount up to $1 million or up to 20 years of imprisonment. Wow. So but I think one of the biggest deterrence there is the loss. Uh, if your business depends upon licenses with the Commerce Department for dual use items, right? Mm -hmm. That could that could absolutely tear apart your business to the extent, okay. you, let's, let's say they even just suspend you for 30 days or whatever, you know, saying you can't get a license for 30 days or 60 days. I mean, that's, a, as you know, right? That's a continuous process that people, you know, involved in these industries uh, depend upon those licenses. There's the lifeblood of a lot of organizations, and you can see how a violation of the anti-boycott laws, which is flagrant and, and continuing, which triggers something like that, which would carry uh, really uh, enormous repercussions for the business that uh, is participating in. Right. So uh, what about the Treasury Department regulations covering uh, anti-boycott activities? Can you sort of run through that just in general, just to give us a high level picture of that? Yeah, so Treasury's anti-boycott laws apply to the activities of U.S. taxpayers and members of what they call U.S. taxpayers control group as defined by the Internal Revenue Code, um, as well as foreign affiliates in which the U.S. taxpayer has an interest of 10% or more. Um, unlike the EAR, there's no nexus to U.S. commerce that's required for a violation of the Treasury laws to occur. So you could have a boycott activity conducted by a foreign affiliate of U.S. taxpayer in foreign commerce, and that uh, boycott activity would be subject to penalization. Mm. And so, um, but in, but this is a different, um, what this does is prohibits people from actually engaging in business with prohib people who are part of an unsanctioned 
international boycott, right? That's right. They generally forbid covered persons and firms from participating uh, in or cooperating with an unsanctioned international boycott. Um, so penalizable activities include instances where a covered person as a condition of doing business directly or indirectly with the, with the country or with the government or company or national uh, of that country refrains from doing business with or in the country that is the object of the boycott, uh, doing business with any United States person who conducts business in the boycotted country, doing business with any company whose ownership or management is comprised of individuals of a boycotted nationality, race, or religion, uh, employing individuals of boycotted nationality, race, or religion, or ensuring or shipping a product and carrier-owned, leased, or operated by a blacklisted individual or entity. So it's pretty broad. And the violations of this, this law, uh, I get, take it as obviously enforced by Treasury. So what, what happens? What, what are the potential uh, downsides there? Yeah, so the financial repercussions that can be imposed by Treasury are pretty enormous and they include a reduction or outright loss of foreign tax credits and the accelerated mm. taxation of the foreign income that would otherwise be deferred. Um, and some corporations have substantial amounts of foreign income that are subject to deferral. So um, all activities to participate in unsanctioned boycotts have to be reported by the taxpayer to the IRS annually, utilizing Form 5713. So, I mean, this, look, we, this raises uh, some real issues for global companies. There's no question. Uh, it's something that obviously should be included in a, a risk assessment. So how, you know, how do you believe, how should companies generally approach uh, compliance uh, in this area? Yeah, so I think there are a number of things they can do. Um, certainly as part of their periodic risk assessment, Companies with operations in the Middle East and other global hotspots should try to identify and prioritize anti-boycott compliance as a potential material risk factor that's separate and apart from general export issues. Um, given the fact that application of the anti-boycott laws is fact-specific, I also think employees assigned to sales, procurement, contracts, business development, and other uh, frontline functions should undergo thorough scenario-based training that peers definitions for the actual text of regulations with tangible real-world examples. Um, and I think effective anti-boycott re compliance requires collaboration across company functions. So a company can rely on its legal team, for instance, to thoroughly vet all agreements that companies located in a particular region like the Middle East ensure that there are no impermissible representations or warranties that are incorporated. And they can also draft, draft standard contractual covenants that require counterparties to transaction to abide by all applicable anti-boycott laws. And it's by taking this proactive and holistic approach to anti-boycott compliance that companies of all shapes and sizes can substantially mitigate the potential for costly violations of these important yet routinely overlooked controls. Yeah, I, and one other question before we wrap up uh, here, Alex, is um, we've generally, um, you know, working with clients uh, help to implement trade compliance you know, policies and procedures. And in our trade compliance uh, policy, we generally include the anti-boycott requirements. So for example, let's say it's a company that doesn't even uh, depend on dual use uh, items or doesn't deal with military items with, uh, with the State Department. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, so we'll have like a compliance program that's built around sanctions compliance obviously. And, but we also include with that trade compliance policy, the anti-boycott laws. 
Um, I mean, it's not as significant a risk, but it's still, it, it can be a, a, a significant risk. Um, is that generally what you see sort of in the trade compliance area? Or have you ever seen sort of people having their own separate, you know, anti-boycott policy? To me, it fits naturally with a trade compliance policy. But what's yeah, your experience? Like, I've actually seen both, Mike. I've seen... Um, companies adopt the approach that you mentioned of including anti-boycott compliance in the broader export compliance policy, which makes sense. And then there are also companies that because of their um, position in the marketplace and exposure to the Middle East that have standalone policies for anti-boycott um, yeah. uh, compliance. Yeah, try to. I guess they, may, they want to emphasize the importance or maybe it's in response to their risk. You know, that and they I have think a high it is risk. because it's so easy to want to follow the laws if you're not familiar with them. Uh, simply, like I said, simply agreeing during a tel- telephone conversation where, you know, a freight forwarder in the Middle East might say, okay, but you have to agree to abide by all of the laws and regulations that are generally applicable to our freight forwarding company uh, could trigger an anti-boycott violation because that would entail agreeing to laws of the country that boycott the state of Israel. So, you have to tread really carefully in that space. Yep. Well, Alex, this has been fantastic. Again, uh, we're so happy to have you uh, at, at the firm on the podcast. We'll have you back uh, some other time. And uh, we really appreciate your time and effort here to you know explain some of these issues. Um, if a listener wants to contact you, uh, what's the best way to reach out to you if they have some questions on this or just want to talk to you about any sort of uh, trade compliance issues or a- any other compliance issues? Yep, so I can be contacted by email at akatoya, that's A-C-O-T-O-I-A at vokoflaw.com. And I would be happy to uh, answer any questions. Great. Well, Alex, thank you again. Uh, thanks, everybody, for uh, for listening. Uh, we'll bring Alex back uh, again. And we uh, appreciate your time, Alex. And uh, we look forward to bringing you back again. Okay? Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. Okay. Thanks again for listening to Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Please subscribe to the podcast series. The Volkov Law Group believes that every company should have a robust ethics and compliance program. Experience and research show that ethical companies are better performers in the global marketplace. You can learn more about the legal and compliance services we offer at our website, www.volkovlaw.com. You can also follow our award-winning blog, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, and our podcast series. You can contact Michael Volkov at his email address, mvolkov at volkovlaw.com. Sugar Magnolia, ringing that.
Sunshine, deep 